You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Well, it's an exciting day. On the East Coast, folks are up early, 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 and time-honored tradition continues. Everyone's donning warm weather, or cold weather, rather, gear, warm hats and gloves, coats. They're gathered to see what happens, because today decides it all, doesn't it? It determines whether our future is sunny and bright or dismal. Sadly, the world's most renowned and reliable prognosticator, Phil the Octopus, is no longer with us. Oh, I'm talking about Groundhog Day. And in case you're wondering, this early, or early this morning, 7.30 East Coast time, Puxatani Phil got up and he saw his shadow on Gobbler's Knob, which means that there's six more weeks of winter, and for those battling the polar vortex, that's pretty discouraging. The good news is that Phil's really only right 37% of the time, which is only 4% more than chance alone. <laughs> Just like short quarterbacks have no future, right? Yeah. Well, I grew up about 200 miles from Puxatawney, so I've always followed Phil, but apparently Groundhog Day didn't really get big until the movie of the same name in 1993. And if you haven't seen it, it's pretty funny. Might be worth your time, you know, on one of those days. Well, here's the deal. Bill Murray's character, a guy named Phil Connor, he lives the exact same day, February 2nd, Groundhog Day, over and over and over and over again. And once his character understands that every day, no matter what, he'll wake up to the same series of events, the bulk of the movie and its humor really is derived from what he chooses to do with that certainty. His choices uh, sort of explore the range of human selfishness and potential, as he does everything from robbing a bank, um, driving his car over a cliff, learning to play piano, learning to be fluent in French, even to dazzle others by knowing all the answers to the questions in Jeopardy before they're even asked. The movie's ridiculous, but the genius is in the idea. How does human free will play out against a certain end? What if we knew that no matter what we said or did, tomorrow's promise would still be before us? What if we knew how the story ended? What difference would it make for the choices that we make today? In the passage before us, we see the Apostle Paul reminding the church in Thessalonica to live boldly in light of a certain future, warning them to stay alert and encouraging them to invest in the hope that they have. So I'm going to invite you to grab a pew Bible and turn to page 961. And let me pray as we start. Prepare our hearts, O Lord, to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, so that hearing we may obey your will. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. The church in Thessalonica is facing some discouragement and doubt. Many of those they love have died. And Paul really doesn't tell us why. It could be illness, it could be persecution, it could be a confluence of things. We just don't know. But we do know that they're grieving. And like anyone who hurts, they just want to know how long. So in chapter 4, verse 13, Paul meets them in their pain. And he reminds them of their hope in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. He basically says, we have nothing to fear because those who are asleep and those who live will both be with Jesus because Jesus will return and gather us all to himself. And then, starting in verse 1, he continues in this way. 
Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When they say there is peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and there will be no escape. But you, beloved, are not in the darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light and children of the day. We are not of the night or the darkness, so let us not fall asleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who are drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has destined us not for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up each other as indeed you are doing. I love that right out of the chute, Paul answers the how long question by basically saying it's the wrong question. I mean, truthfully, Jesus didn't even know. So why are you bothering to try to figure it out? But he is kind of saying, look, death isn't your worst enemy here, friends. There's more dangerous things that can happen to you, like falling asleep at the wheel. Now, if you're like me at all, you're already distracted by the fact that Paul has mixed his metaphors. So wait, death is like sleeping, but... Being faithful is also like sleeping? This isn't really helpful, and I'm confused. (laughs) And you should be. (laughs) A few years back, I was introduced to a retired professor of New Testament from Boston, whose entire life's scholarly work has been focused on the Apostle Paul. He's since become a mentor to me, if not a sort of grandfather. And ironically, he's also named Paul. And he's written a number of books on the, old, on the New Testament and about Pauline theology. And I love talking to him. It could be the Southern drawl. He's so sweet. Um, but I also love talking to him about, uh, I like talking about faith and scripture and ministry. He's a great encouragement to me. And he's kind of my number one go-to for all my theological questions. Because unlike a set of commentaries, I can actually ask him questions. And I get answers in real time. Although to be fair, he also asks me questions, which makes him a little more challenging than your average commentary. But at any rate, we spoke recently, and when our conversation turned to 1 Thessalonians, I asked him this question, why does Paul start mixing things up? Why does he use sleep as a metaphor for death in one place? And then he speaks about um, sleep as a metaphor for losing our faith and complacency in another. And his response to me, the wise doctor, he said, I know. He does it everywhere. It's as if Paul's never content with one metaphor if four or five will do. That's it? That's what you got, Doc? Never said his answers were very satisfying. Well, here's what we do know from other places in Paul's writing. He often uses the metaphor of sleep to talk about death because he wants Christians to understand that for us, death always comes with a promise of life. And while we may grieve, we don't have to grieve as if this is it. It's the end. Because it just isn't. There's a comma between life and death. As Eugene Peterson puts it, commas are the places where we pause, where we take a breath. Commas are the spaces where meaning gets added in. And without them to help us understand, or, and they help us understand how one thing gets connected to another. Without them, there are troubles. So I'm going to give you a slide. Let's eat, Grandpa. Let's eat, Grandpa. 
Commas save lives, people. Punctuation saves lives. And just like it makes all the difference for Grandpa, adding space, adding a pause, it really makes all the difference for us, too. The challenge before Paul is to help the Thessalonians understand that life does not end with death. But there's a comma, a space between them. And the space that we have before us, the space of our lives, is space that gives meaning and connection. And dare I say, it can even save our lives. And not just our grandpas. There's a connection between how we see death and how we see life. Which is probably what makes the movie Groundhog Day so interesting to me. Since Phil Connor knows he can do anything, even die, and he'll still wake up tomorrow to a new day, granted the same day, his choices reveal a lot about what he believes. It does, it does with us as well. And because life and death are inextricably intertwined, we have to understand what we believe about one to understand what we do with the other. So let's start at the end with death, which always implies eternal life. If we're honest, when most of us think of heaven, it's usually rooted in some Hollywood notion, just go there, of uh, fog, togas, soft lighting, Birkenstocks, streets of gold, harps, quiet conversations, accented maybe by ginormous choirs that sing like Beverly Sills. A pastor joked that he heard someone describe heaven this way. It'll be unlike anything we can comprehend, like a church service that goes on forever. (laughs) Which he offered may seem more like hell than heaven. (laughs) Especially today. Well, as first century Jews understood heaven, it was always tied to the reign of the Messiah. It never involved sitting around. It was really about inaugurating God's kingdom in such a way that the world would know about the king, and the world would be transformed. Which is pretty, you know, that's a pretty busy venture, if you ask me. N.T. Wright adds, this inauguration is far from complete. And it involves the active participation of God's people living the teachings of Jesus through social justice, nonviolence, and forgiveness in order to become fulfilled. So, biblically speaking, the new heaven and new earth of Revelation 21 are established here, even now, as God makes his home among mortals and dwells with us as our God. That's not some Hollywood ethereal fluff, people. That's real time, and now. And it says that our choices can demonstrate that God's way rules the day. Heaven is supposed to be continuously breaking in all around us because God is where God's people are. And God's kingdom comes when God's rule of love is exercised through them. That's why we pray the Lord's Prayer here every single week. Because our longing for God's kingdom come and God's will be done on earth as in heaven is very much an expression of our belief that whatever else we may hear in the news or read in the paper, that God's kingdom is greater than the human propensity for violence and greed And it comes when we say yes to God. So it's no wonder that Paul tells the Thessalonians to keep heaven in their sights and to stay alert. As long as they're focused on God's inbreaking kingdom, Paul knows they will be wide awake, ushering God's kingdom come wherever they go. 
But there's also a warning tone in Paul's words. The kind of work, this kind of work rather, takes vigilance. And Paul wants to help his beloved church be on their guard so they don't get lulled to sleep by false hopes. Now I have to say, as a former professor and now a pastor, I know a little bit about people nodding off. (laughs) I know what people miss. Because I've listened, though, to more sermons than I preached, and I've heard more lectures than I've given, I know exactly what it takes to stay in the game because I am with you. I ask the question, do I make the grocery list? Do I make the to-do list? Or do I pay attention and kind of take notes of things I want to follow up on later that I've heard in the sermon? Do I doodle and let my mind wander? Or do I let God capture my imagination, giving me a picture of what could be? You need to know, people leave that stuff behind in the pews all the time. And someone in the last service came up afterwards and handed this to me. She's been working on it for weeks. I'm so honored. Yeah, don't pretend. I know. I've been there. Anyway, Paul likens our tendency to lose focus as falling asleep or passing out cold from a drunken stupor. Whatever the reason, if your head's not in the game... You're missing out on seeing God's kingdom. So, how are we tempted to lose focus? And why? In his book, Shaped by the Cross, author Ken Geyer writes, In the ancient Near East, the extent of a king's rule was marked by the placement of his image throughout his kingdom. So, in the Old Testament, Nebuchadnezzar and Ramesses II both had huge statues of themselves carved and then placed at pivotal intersections uh, between their kingdom and, the, and the, the adjacent lands to announce to everyone who saw them who the ruler was, how big he was, how strong he was, and how greatly he was to be feared. In the first century, Caesar not only had statues, he also had Roman centurions who essentially served the same function. Equipped with heavy armor and sent throughout the empire, they were the dispatched representatives of the power of their king, the holy Roman emperor. And as insecure and power-hungry as that emperor was, well, that's how powerful and domineering those centurions were called to be wherever they were sent. If you look back at verse 3, you'll see the line, there is peace and security in quotes. Air quotes. It was the motto or the tagline of the the Roman Empire, the Pax Romana. And it was all about Roman power and government. And where Americans may use life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to talk about individual freedom, peace and security in Rome represented the kind of peace and security that's secured through power and dominance and enforced through violence. Remember the horrific scene as Jesus is lashed 39 times? That's an example of how peace and security was established under the Pax Romana. And don't forget the crosses that regularly executed dissenters of those who threatened Roman rule. That's how the Pax Romana was maintained and enforced. It puts Jesus' call for his disciples to take up your cross and follow me in a whole new light because Thessalonica is part of the Roman Empire. And these folks are very aware that peace and security would always come at a high cost for those on the fringe. Violence and oppression beget violence and oppression as peace and security appears to be more of a sliding scale that benefits those at the center so much more than those on the fringe. 
living under the watchful eye of the Roman Empire, Paul fears that these young Christians might abandon their faith and be lulled into believing that the Pax Romana is actually the better way to obtain peace and security. That if they buy into that system, their futures will be bright and stable and more hopeful. It's a fear that asks, what if the power of the gospel isn't actually strong enough? Can faith in Jesus really address my deepest fears and needs? What if faith really doesn't do it? In the movie Groundhog Day, once Phil Connors understands that he can do whatever he wants and it bears no consequence, he initially uses that experience for personal gain as power to manipulate others to get whatever he wants. So he learns what different women are interested in so that he can seduce them. He knows when the bank security is vulnerable so he can steal money and he buys himself a really expensive car and really fancy clothes only to wake up the next morning to start all over again. He eventually masters every person and every situation until he has everything, money, power, and the capacity to manipulate people and circumstances to his benefit. In many ways, he's kind of the icon of the American dream of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He's got it all. But Connors eventually grows weary of the emptiness and is strangely unsatisfied by pursuing selfish gain. He eventually finds his life so completely unbearable that he drives his stolen truck off a cliff only to exasperated wake again at six o'clock. Rise and shine, people, rise and shine. Another Groundhog Day. Even death for him is no escape. It never is. Which is why Paul calls not only the Thessalonians to stay awake, but also to be clothed in that which is much more fitting to a follower of Jesus. Not hopelessness and fear, but the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. It's an abbreviated form of what he describes in Ephesians 6 as the armor of God, so very different from the Roman centurions. And here's why. Because Paul knows Caesar's not the only king in town. Created in God's own image and set in the garden, humanity was meant to be living images of God set to re- in place to represent God's reign wherever they would go. It was always the plan. So in the Old Testament, the entire community is called a treasured possession, Israel, my treasured possession throughout the earth. And they were meant to live in relationship with God in such a way that all the surrounding ra- nations would come, run to know this God, Yahweh. The term Christian means little Christ, and we're intended to be dispatched representatives who embody the power and the authority of the king of kings throughout his kingdom. We are sent to crossroads, junctures, hospitals, classrooms, offices, living rooms, coffee shops, football games, everywhere throughout the king's great empire as a sign to the world that faith, hope, and love rule the day right where they are. We're God's image, and we've been sent to show up and be Jesus wherever we go. Now, the movie Groundhog Day takes a big turn when one day Phil Connor wakes up and decides to stop focusing on himself. It's been an empty pursuit, and he knows it. So he decides to start showing up in places determined to make a difference because he knows the schedule, everybody's schedule every day. So he starts to work his entire schedule around what he knows. He knows he can save the kid that falls out of the tree every day at the same time. And he knows that kid will never say thank you. 
He knows the guy is going to choke on his lunch in that restaurant. He also knows that he can comfort the old homeless man, even though try day after day as he may, he never can seem to prevent his death. But to his credit, he keeps showing up to offer him a good meal and company and love regardless of that outcome. The wonder of it all is he's actually transformed from a prima donna and kind of a jerk to a kind and gracious and, dare I say, loving man. He becomes very different as he serves, not because he needs or he wants something, but just because he can. And giving to others becomes his avenue of receiving the stuff that he really longed for and that he really hoped for. Last week, our side-by-side staff received an email from one of our volunteers. Side-by-side is our, one of the ministries here that serves families with seriously ill children um, by coming alongside them on their treatment journey. And this volunteer is a recent UW grad. She's an in-student. And while she was a student, she herself faced a horrific illness. And she was told that she would likely die. She survived, although it took a year to learn how to walk again and to, to eat and to get dressed. So she became a volunteer. And armed with nothing more than her experience and her faith, she showed up at her buddy, a three-year-old we'll call Jenna's, bedside. And this is what she wrote. One of the toughest yet most inspiring experiences I had with Jenna was at the hospital. She just had medicine put through her nose tube, and it bugged her to the point that she was in tears. I crawled into bed with her, and I held her. After a while, I asked if she was scared, and she said she was. And I told her it was okay to be scared. She looked up at me and said, but I'm scared every day. I was blown away by a three-year-old's comprehension of how she felt. Her illness, she's so smart. It broke my heart, and I told her, I know. I told her I had been scared too, but she was being so brave, braver than most grown-ups would be. And she put her little arms around me, and she squeezed me tight. And I prayed with everything that I had that my being there could make her feel a teeny bit safe, even if for a minute. She truly inspired me with her courage. Jesus was at Jenna's bedside because Olivia decided to show up. It brought comfort to Jenna, and it's been transformative for Olivia. And dare I say, God's kingdom came a little closer in that hospital bedroom. Every single one of us has the opportunity to show up and to build one another up. We can do so by pausing to look and see where we might take our skills, our talents, our interests, or even take a risk. Because did I mention that Olivia comes not with a background in social work or psychology, but with an MBA? It's not really the first go-to when you think of working with a child in pain. But when we take risks and step out and show up, the kingdom of God grows. It expands, and people are blessed because that's who we have been designed to be. So there are two things I want to say as I close. The first is that nobody becomes part of the body of Christ apart from the body of Christ, which is to say that our personal transformation requires that we invest in others. Nobody becomes in a vacuum, and none of us can be edified or built up or be shaped more fully into the image of God apart from being connected to others who can help shape and encourage us in our faith. We need each other. 
We need community. And don't be lulled into to sleep by a lie that says anything less. If you want to be connected here, but you don't know how, I encourage you to think about joining a small group. Again, there are signups. We'll know more about, uh, we'll have stuff next week. You can look on our website, in the bulletin. There are ways to get connected to community here. And we want to help you grow in your faith. And secondly, I would say that if you are the body, or that you are a part of the body of Christ, this body, and so we do invite you to get involved. For those of you who are UPCers, there are so many options. The bulletin insert, our webpage, all these invite you to lots of things that are going on around you. And the insert that says, remember, invites you to think about how God has wired you. Extrovert, hey, we got a job for you. Introvert, we got jobs for you. Don't worry, we'll hide you somewhere. (laughs) Do you like going deep with people? We'd love you to to be connected to folks who want to grow. And this isn't just for grown-ups. It's for our teenagers and our kids, college students, and for whole families. Because when we serve together, we grow together. It should always be an open and growing process. Gordon MacDonald, the 18th century Scottish preacher, said it this way, and I will end with this. What you have to do is let your light shine. I don't mean that you should be an example to other people. You have no business setting yourself up as an example. You have to be and do. And that is letting the light shine. Step out for God. It will be the start of a fresh faith you have not thought of before. For if you believe that the Son of God died and rose again, your whole future is full of the dawn of an eternal morning, of such hope as the highest imagination has not a glimmer of it yet. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are our eternal hope. You are the light of the world, and you invite us to be light with you, to shine Um, somehow shine your light in our our lives and what we do, where we show up. God, we pray that you'd continue to lead us to grow us more and more into your body, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. To the glory of the Father, we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.